uh, I'm not Lance, and uh, I'm sorry, maybe you, you were hoping to listen to him, but you get stuck with an Italian accent preacher. <laughs> That's fine though, it's the Word of God, and uh, we're going to uh, love together the passage that we're about to study together. It's a wonderful passage, and it's in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5 of Matthew 5. Chapter 5, Matthew 5. And their, their testimony is just so well introduced to this wonderful passage. Uh, uh, it, it struck when he said that, that the Chinese got everything from Buddhism to communism to more uh, um, materialism, capitalism, and now they want more because all these things, they, they don't satisfy their soul. What a great introduction for my sermon because that's what we're going to study today. We're going to study Christian distinctives. We're going to see how the distinctives of a Christian are actually the 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 food for the soul that drives their motives to do what they do and what we do. Why people come to Christ and why they love to stay together, study the Word of God, and uh, live a life together as a church in community. This wonderful passage is tremendous and impacted my life. In fact, this is probably my last time I'm here at Bethany because uh, next Sunday until the 25th, uh, we're going to be visiting a lot of churches, presenting the same thing that this great couple are doing, presenting the ministry in Italy, and uh, telling to people that there is a place in Italy, and there is a, a need in Italy to hear the Word of God. We're going to be out, we're going to be visiting a church in Eagle Rock, and then we're going to go to Jupiter, where right now Lancy is. Then we're going to go to Massachusetts. Then we're going to come back for a short time, and the 25th of June, we're going to have the last time together here at Bethany, as Sonia and I are getting ready. Most likely on the 26th of June, we're going to leave for good to go back to Italy and plant a church in Italy, Florence and where there is not a solid evangelical church. There is a, a lot of, lots of charismatic churches around Italy that are not preaching the gospel, they're just preaching faith healing and many other things. There are so many other uh, realities, but faithful teaching of the Word of God is very few. Conservative churches are lacking in Italy. And I'd like to see one day the people in Italy getting thirst for the Word of God as is happening in China. As is happening in China. So may God uh, bless that. And what we need in Italy, anywhere else, and here in the United States, is these distinctives that we're going to see this morning. What happened to the Americans? You see the Chinese fighting to get together to listen to the Word of God. What happened to the Americans? Why they are not any more thirsty of the truth. Why they are not seeking anymore to, to stay together and love the Word of God, love the family of God, love the church. The passage that we have in front of us in Matthew 5.17 answers these questions. 
answer this question. He gives us two distinctives that we must uphold, we must faithfully conserve as the church of God. And we can faithfully and confidently hold them in our hands, telling to the people around the house that they have failed because they don't hold anymore these distinctives. Let's go and read this passage, this wonderful passage in Matthew 5.17. Matthew 5.17 starts saying, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of this commandment and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a critical passage. We are in a wonderful sermon. It's the, the, probably the most excellent sermon that we have, we hold from the record of Jesus' speech, Jesus' sermons. It's Matthew 5 to 7 is a, is a collection of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew recorded this incredible event that happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew starts off with giving us a genealogy, presenting the, the, the king, the lineage of the king Jesus, who has come according to the promises that has been given to us in the Old Testament. Christ has come as the king of the people of Israel. He has put his feet on the ground. He has visited his nation. He has visited his people. He has come. And now he is being introduced by John the Baptist. As the prophet Isaiah says, the voice of the crying in the desert, here the Messiah is coming. And Jesus, in, in, uh, in, in, in chapter 4, we read immediately, verse 17, that Jesus began his ministry... And he start preaching a simple message. Matthew 4, 17, Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the initial message that Jesus was preaching everywhere. And it was confirming that the powerful message with wonders. In, in Matthew 4, 23, we see that Jesus was going through the Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, which is, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Then what happened? The news about him spread through all Syria and brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demonics, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Confirming his message. His powerful message was confirming by his authority in healing these people. And in verse 25, the result is, Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus got the attention of the people of that time. Everybody wanted to know more about Jesus Christ. Everybody wanted to know more about the king that has come to visit Israel. 
Everyone wanted to go there because Jesus has the power to control these things, to heal people. The powerful words were confirmed by his ministry in healing his people, in caring for, for his people, in caring for those who were there. So you might think like a strong politician, then he would go stand and make an aringa, saying, now I'm going to give you reasons why you should follow me. In Matthew 5, it doesn't start with that. You look at the crowds, and he sees these people lost. He had compassion for these people. And he turns to his disciple and says, Hey, the people of Israel, the Pharisees, the scribes, they are not good in leading these people to God. They have fallen astray from God and from his counsel. And he's talking to his disciple and saying, I'm not telling you the reason why you should follow me. I'm giving you the characteristics of why you are my disciple. The will I light, the reason you are my disciple. Because the work of God is doing in your life. It transforms your life and gives you the characteristic of being poor in spirit. Being gentle, being mourning over sin. Hunger and thirsty for righteousness. Merciful. From verse 3 all the way to verse 12, Jesus gives his disciple characteristics that are part of a true disciple. It's not something that you try to achieve in your life, to gain in your life. You either have those or you don't have those. You either have the qualities that Jesus is denouncing here and affirming here in the, verse, the first paragraph of this sermon, or you don't have them. And then, you, then he goes on and says, you, who are my disciple, you are the light. You are the salt. You are called to season this world with true worship. A worship that belongs to God. And because you have been called by God to be set apart, and you have these qualities that have been trusting in you by God's power, you are the salt. You are the light. You are the people that God is going to use to lead this crowd to Him. And he closes, you know, he goes on in verse 16 saying, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's a key, key verse. That is a very important key, key verse. How do you understand what are, what, what are good works? You know, that is a pretty interesting question because everybody can appear doing good works and doing good deeds. But who is the one who determines what good works and what good deeds are? It's not me. I can appear as a good, well-dressed, and appear as a moral person before you. And I can fool you, make you believe that I'm a good person. But ultimately, the word that comes out from the mouth of God will establish if you are doing the good works, the good deeds. The same one that Jesus is claiming here, that we all as disciples of Christ, we all should and must do. What are these good works? Who are, you know, able to do these good works? And who's determining the standards where we can judge what good works are and what bad works are? Who's going to decide it? Whether we are living a, a life that honors God 
or a life that dishonor God. It's not my, my same brother and sister who can potentially some see, see some bad things in my life. But ultimately, it's the word of God, as Hebrews says, that judges the motives of my heart and understand where I am. And it's like in James when I'm mirroring myself before the Word of God, and I see myself into the Word, and I've been convicted by my evil motivation, by sinful desire. And though I may appear good before men, the Word of God pierces me through the heart and reveals the hidden sin of my heart. And Jesus goes on and, and gives them these two distinctives to his disciples that we just read in Matthew 17. And Jesus says, you know, dear disciples, you who, are be, who have been called by God to display characteristics in your life that are unique, that, that is not because of your effort, but has been entrusted to you because of the work of the Holy Spirit, you uphold these two distinctives, which are a supreme authority and a superior righteousness. Wait a minute. What do you mean by supreme authority and superior righteousness? Let's look one at a time. Let's look at starting for the supreme authority. Verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophet. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now think about this. His disciples are listening to Jesus about their characteristics, about the fact that the disciples of Christ are marked by these characteristics described in, in, from verse 3 to 12, and that they've been called the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And now Jesus says, hey, stop a second. Do not think. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophet. Why did Jesus start off in that way in a negative command and say, do not think? Well, it's true. Sometimes it's better when we don't think, right? We think too much sometimes. And we go so far that we can read through things that are not even there, right? And Jesus is basically appealing to them and saying, What I'm about to tell you, it might cause you to stumble. Because you have been growing in a society, in a culture, where you've been heard the Word of God preached in a wrong way. You've been growing in a culture that... It Install in your heart, in your mind, a wrong systematic theology. Where you need to be very cautious that what I'm about to tell you doesn't go against what is being revealed in the Old Testament, in the law and the prophet. So, basically, Jesus says, what I'm about to start teaching you, which is from Matthew 5.21 all the way to 7.12, might cause you to stumble. Because you might initially not understand what I'm about to tell you. But think about this. I'm not giving something new. I'm confirming what has been already revealed. Do not think. Sometimes, considering the reality where we, we've been growing in. And the culture that we've been growing in. We come from a traditional living a, a form of Christianity, right? And when the Word of God is open and faithfully preached, sometimes it scares us. It makes us a little bit stumbling because there's something that maybe we never heard before. 
And when we grew up in a systematic mentality, with a systematic culture, in a systematic theology, where we, we move in the same direction, we, we do the same thing every Sunday morning, every, every day, we do the same thing in the same way. And then here he comes, that the Word of God is preached faithfully, and judge our traditional aspects, we like back up for a second and we are disoriented. This is the same thing that Jesus is telling to his disciple. You've been doing for centuries something that traditionally is common to everybody, but it's not honoring God. It's not something that honors God. In fact, in the prophets, we read that God says, I'm bored of your offering and sacrifices. You worshiping with your lips, but your heart is far away from me. And Jesus is now starting something incredible here. He's telling to his disciple, I'm going to give you the right understanding of the Word of God. I'm going to flesh out to you what it means to understand the Word of God and apply the Word of God in your life, which is the supreme authority. Jesus says, I'm the first one that submits under the supreme authority, which is the law and the prophet." At that time, the New Testament wasn't yet written down. When Jesus was delivering this important sermon, the, the New Testament wasn't at the hands of his disciples. The only revealed Word of God was the Old Testament, which is the, the two partition law, which is the Pentateuch, and the prophets, which is, include all the, old, the other books of the Old Testament. That was the revealed Word of God, and that was enough in the hand of Jesus to proclaim the powerful message of the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So, dear disciples, do not think that I've come to abolish when I come to fulfill the law and the prophet. I'm going to give you an understanding of what it means to follow God by using properly the Old Testament, the law and the prophet. Explaining them exactly what it means to be a follower of Christ Jesus, being a follower and a worshiper of the true living God. Think about this. Jesus says, do not think I've come. It's an incredible word. Do not think I've come. Jesus has come. If you don't understand his ministry, if you don't understand the fact that Jesus has had to come to fulfill the law and the prophet, we are lost. If you don't understand what is really the ministry that Jesus has come to accomplish, then you are lost. And Jesus is telling these exact words. It might appear to you that my coming can go against what the law and the prophet has said. But because you are superficial, you have never read in full. Now I'm going to exegete, explain to you what is the Old Testament. What is the law and the prophet? I didn't come to abolish. And the word here is very strong. It's very strong. It's like it's the same word is used in, in Matthew 24 when Jesus refers to the destruction of the temple. One stone will not left one on top of the other. It's a completely demolition. And Jesus says, no, that, please take away this from your mind. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And what, what does it mean to fulfill? What does it mean to fulfill the law and the prophet? 
First and foremost, I want to tell you, I want to bring you to an important key passage in John chapter 5. The Gospel of John that our pastor has been preached so faithfully to us. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 46. Here Jesus, here Jesus confront again the mentality that where especially the Pharisees and the scribes would accuse him of breaking the law and the prophets, of breaking the Old Testament. And starting from verse 45, Jesus says, Do not think, again, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you will believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? That is a key verse that Jesus is pronouncing here. He's basically equating his words with the words of Moses, and that we know the source of the words that Moses wrote down. Who is the sort, ultimate source of that revealed word of God that came through Moses? God. God revealed all the laws and regulation. All, everything was revealed to Moses and to anybody else who wrote under the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is equating that revealed word of God with his words. With his exact words, is comparing to himself the authority that belonged to the Old Testament. And as he was revealing the New Testament, he was confirming the full and supreme authority of the revealed Word of God. Do not think I've come to abolish the Lord of the Prophet. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. So Jesus' words and teaching was going to confirm what has been revealed already in the Old Testament. Now, think about this. The Word who was with God, who was God, came on earth. The Word that created everything, that was God from the beginning, came on earth to give us the farther revelation an explanation of the completion of the Word of God. He's giving in our hands the full revealed Word of God. That is a powerful statement. Jesus is the man Jesus and the God Jesus combined these in this statement. And He's coming here on earth. He's telling to the disciple, I am the one who's going to give you the full revelation and full supreme authority in your hands. We have an incredible distinctive that distincts us from any other religion, which is the objective truth of the Word of God. Do you believe that what you have in your hands is the ultimate standard for your life? Do you believe that what Jesus gave you and the revelation of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the ultimate standard that, that can confirm and guide you through your work as a Christian. There are many churches 
Many believers that will say that they are Christians and then negate the ultimate authority of the Word of God. They get bored when we preach the gospel, when we preach the Word in the church. They want to have shows in the church. Give me something that satisfies my emotions. Don't give me something that nurtures my mind and my heart, that makes me turn to God in repentance. This is the Word of God. That's what we need. What happened to America? They lost track of this truth, the supreme authority. And you know, when faithful pastors will go in churches and they're trying to start preaching the gospel, and start faithfully preaching the word of God and giving the meaning of the word of God, people will react and say, Whoa, this is not what I heard so far. And they can be even stumble. And say, no, this is not what I want. Please, consider this. Run away from those churches where the word of God is not open. And go to those churches where the word of God is preached. When if the only thing is left is the word of God. That is good enough for our souls. We all have a systematic theology. The matter is if your systematic theology is right or wrong. And how do we know that? And when I say, let me define what is a systematic theology. Systematic theology is something that you build up in your mind. Where you, you build up a belief of how things function. Or about God, who is God, His holiness, His character. And how that reflects in our lives. And how it impacts our walk with the Lord, right? Every one of us build in his own mind a systematic theology, a systematic belief of how we do things. We are mechanical. Try to do this as an exercise. From the first time you get in the morning, you will put your, the exact same food on the floor every morning. We are habit creature. We do things by habit. We build up our own life in a systematic way. And we create tradition and belief that can become overarching as ultimate authority in our life. And if we do things that can create an imbalance in that system, we feel lost. For that reason, believers, we should read always the Word of God in determining if my way of living is confirmed to the will of God. It's like what God has determined in His will, in His holy character, for our holy life. He came to fulfill. Think about not only the prophetic message. There are over, over 19 passages in Matthew that determines how Christ fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. I will bore you in reading all, all of them. But that's not the point. Christ not only is the, the one who is about to explain, he submitted himself to that word. And he costed his life. Because all the prophecies that are mentioned in the, in the Old Testament culminated with the death of Christ. 
And then it will culminate again as the second coming as the king. But the first coming was point, pointing to the death on the cross. Think about this. When Jesus said, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophet. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. How tough was that verse? How tough was the words? Because he knew what he meant to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. He submitted himself. He, the one who proclaimed these words, submit himself to this ultimate authority. To his own death. He's a man of word, right? He was a man of word. He was a faithful God. Though he costed the death on the cross. The judgment of God upon his shoulder. Separated from his eternal father. For the love that he has for you. For the love that he has for me. For the desire to honor God to the end. In keeping his word. Look at the word that we have here fulfilled. It, it explained the purpose of the law and the prophets. Jesus affirmed that now the center object of the law and the prophet is arrived in full harmony with what is pronounced and commanded. In this way, Jesus did not put aside the law of the prophet. He alighted the authority and reliability that was Right there in front of the eyes of his disciples. Basically said, everything that the law and the prophet says points to me. Points to me. I'm the culmination of the Old Testament. Follow me. Follow my words. Follow my testimony. Follow what I'm about to tell you that can cause you to stumble. So think about this. We are in this church. We are here worshiping God with a desire not to follow tradition of man. Not to follow what man and the course of man has established for this church. But to confirm the powerful message of this word, ultimate authority, supreme authority of the word of God that stands above our heads. And determine how we do things. That's why we are called Christians. Because we follow the words of Jesus Christ. Verse 18 is giving us the reason why we should also take the Bible as ultimate authority. And as we look at you know, Christ exalting his ministry in the Old Testament. We now look at Christ exalting him. The Word of God has the permanent, inherent, infallible, clear revelation of God. Look in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. For truly, it's a dogmatic statement. For truly I say to you, think about this. So far, until now, everything was given by Moses and the prophets. But now Jesus stands up and says, For truly, I say to you. It's a dogmatic statement. He's putting there the stamp of authority. For what I'm about to tell you is amen. That's the original Greek word. For truly, 
It's amen. That's what I'm about to tell you. It's a certain thing. What I'm about to explain you, it's truly, it's dogmatic. It's the word of God. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. So that is an incredible statement. He includes everything between earth and heaven. Between earth and sky. Everything that is in there will pass away. Do, I, do we agree with that? Everybody will die sooner or later. Everybody will eventually come to an end. And everything comes to an end. Days are going by. Years are going by. Generations are passing. People come to life. They are born. And people are dying. And that's the cycle. And as through the seasoning of the sun coming up and down. And years are going by. Everything is going to be destroyed. And ultimately, Jesus was pointing to probably Revelation 19, when, when the new heaven and new earth will, uh, will take precedence over this old creation, and this will be judged with fire, and will come to an end, everything that we know today. And Jesus says, yes, until that point, though heaven and earth may pass away, though these temporary things can last long, but one, one thing, one day will come to an end. The word of God stands for the eternity. It says, not the, smallest le- not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The permanency of scripture. The word of God stands throughout the century. It doesn't change. It doesn't adapt to the culture. It doesn't transform so that it can be more uh, palatable, more lovable for the culture. We don't bend the truth. We don't change the truth. It's a permanent statement. It will never change because it's the Word of God. As God is eternal, so His Word will stand forever. Will stand forever. The Word that we have in our hands the Word of God, the revealed Word of God, is the one that will last forever. From the time it was revealed to the time where this heaven and earth will pass away and the new heaven and new earth will come to exist, this world will do exactly how it was determined by the voice and Word of God. It will accomplish everything that has been said, everything that has been written down. And starting with the coming of Christ Jesus, starting there at that point when Christ came, the permanency of Scripture should give us assurance of a faithful God. It's not a movable God. It's not a God that change, right? It's not a God that says, okay, I'll forgive you, Gianluca. I give you a new life in Christ. And then he says, no, I change my words. Oh, I want to bend my words. I think I made a mistake. No, right? When God says one thing, it stays for eternity. It stays for eternity. That's why I want to go back to Italy and preach the gospel to a Christian nation. Because you know what they say? That the word of God is obsolete. You know what is more important? Tradition. Tradition is more important. 
So the Pope, is, every time as he gets up in the morning to start teaching something, he goes up in the, in the beautiful window of, of Basilica of St. Peter and says, No, today the Norman and God and dogma is this. Don't listen to what, what, what happened in the past. That is exactly the reality of what is happening in Italy. And guess what? There are many evangelical churches who have been abandoning the ultimate authority of Scripture, the supreme authority of Scripture. Following myth, following ideal, following the postmodern mentality here and everywhere else. The permanency of the Word of God should motivate us to be men and women of the Word. Of this Word, they live this Word. If the Word is permanent, then will affect my life. If I truly believe that the Word of God is unchangeable and stands throughout the centuries and will not bend, it will remain the ultimate through truth that will never change then it will cause me to walk in obedience, in consistency with what is in this Word. It's important. Now look at the inerrancy of Scripture. Jesus points to the little stroke, to the little dot. They have been placed there with much care. Now it's like, you know, the... To, to give you an example, how do you distinguish a capital I from a, a, for, from a small L? There is up there in the little corner of the, the small L, a little appendices that will make the capital I distinguish from the L. And Jesus says that every little stroke or dot is essential and vital in the Word of God. It's been placed there because there is a meaning that is associated to that letter, that is connected with the rest of the sentence, that is connected with the rest of the phrase, with the rest of the paragraph, that convey a meaning. God is specifically careful when He re- it was specifically careful when He revealed His Word and inspired every word in such a way that every word and every little title and jot is at the right place. To convey an exact meaning. God gave his proof of inerrancy on the word of God. My name, God says, is at stake. So I want to be sure that I edit in such a way that no error is in it. Think about this. When Jesus affirmed these statements, he had in his hands not the original manuscript. manuscript. They were written a thousand years before, a thousand years before, right? Maybe the last was 400 years. He knew exactly that what he had, the scroll that he opened when he read Isaiah 53, was a copy. It was confirming even the work that the Lord has done in keeping His Word void of errors throughout the centuries, transcribing faithfully from generation to generation. It's not that amazing? It's not that amazing? What a great word we have in our hands. And even in our translation, though this is our translation, with, with confidence, we see that God has providentially helped us in making such an incredible, distinct, noble job in translating the Word of God. One of the reasons I wanted to come here to seminary 
It's because I wanted to know Hebrew and Greek. I wanted to be sure that I was able to handle accurately the Word of God. That I was not going to preach and give wrong meaning to words. Because God cares so much about His name that He proved this word to be inerrant. Every title, every joy is essential. And then also the infallibility of the word of God. The perspicuity of the word of God. Infallible. The inerrancy says the word of God does not contain error. The infallibility of God cannot err. Cannot err. The word of God cannot err. And how do we see that? Everything that was planned in the Old Testament and that was revealed by God through prophecies and been reading the Old Testament will be accomplished. It cannot err. Not any, even one promise can fall short and say, oops, I made a mistake. Oh, that didn't happen. You never find in the Old Testament and the Lord said, and that, oops, I made a mistake. When the Lord says, He says, and He brings to pass what He says, it's an infallible word. And it's a clear word. It's a, the perspicuity tells us that it's a word that we can understand. It's not a word that is a language that we don't understand. It's not a word that is so far from us that we can never understand. No. It tells us, when He says that it will be accomplished... It makes a clear understanding that, hey, you disciple, as you read the Old Testament, you can connect the dots and see how what has been promised in the Old Testament come to pass in my own life as I fulfill the law and the prophet. And throughout the centuries, how the prophecies are coming to fulfillment. And how that Old Testament law and prophet is so clear that you can understand the mind of God in the way that he revealed it to you. He revealed in a prepositional statement, with prepositional statement, so that we can understand. As you open the, the newspaper in the morning, you understand what's happening with Trump, with football, and so on and so forth. So God, in a way that is way holier, revealed His mind to you. And He wants that you understand Him through the power and illumination of the Holy Spirit, what He determined for your life as a Objective truth, unchanging truth, faithful truth, inerrant truth. That is incredible, incredible statement. Jesus says, do not think. Hey, disciples, you are now about to see something, to hear about something that, that might stumble you. But do not think that I'm any way, any way corrupting this exceptional revelation of God's Word. I'm the first one who submitted himself to the point that I'm going to die according to the promises of the Old Testament. I'm going to give you proof that everything that is in the Word of God in the Old Testament has passed the test of inerrancy, infallibility. It's clear word that is revealed to you. So the first distinctive, it's supreme authority. What is the truth that you have in front of your eyes? What is the truth that makes you do what you do? 
that motivate you, motivates you in the morning when you get up or in the night when you go back to, to rest? What is the truth that motivates you? That it's the engine that makes you work every day, that lets you do what you do, that lets you come here in this place is the Word of God, precious Word of God that impacts your life. Because that is essential. Because the first distinctive is this, the supreme authority. The second one, the superior righteousness. Verse 19 and 20, Jesus says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of this commandment and teaches others to do the same should be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them he shall be called great in the, in the kingdom of heaven. So when you uphold the, superior, the supreme authority and faithfully live your life according to that standard, then it will result in a superior righteousness. It's not a righteousness like this, this, the Pharisees, the scribes. It's a righteousness that comes from the ability to uphold the faithful teaching and obedience of Scripture. Jesus says, whoever then annuls. Annuls, it's the same root word of destroy. The Greek word that we saw in verse 17 is kataluo. But here it's luo. It is a loose, loose something. It's not speaking about destroy in the essence as kataluo has like a strong meaning implied to it. Yeah. He has a more loose concept where it's not about like destroying or annulling. But it's speaking about the, 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 the lack of upholding even the least of God's commandment as not necessary for your life. It's not the fact that we, uh, you know, we might relax this least of these commandments because we are unable to fulfill that. It's not the fact that we are all falling short of God's glory and we cannot be perfect and, and therefore, we, we, we sin and we, we cannot fully obey everything that is in the law. It's not speaking about that. It's speaking about more the concept where you would take, you know, the part that seems like insignificant. And you say, oh, what, the genealogy or, you know, what it means, this little law? I don't care. I don't care about these things. I want to give the big picture. Don't give me the, these the little details. They are minor. They are less important. It's an attitude that highlights an evidence of you not caring for God's Word. And ultimately, you know what it is? You don't care about God. If God take it, the, the eternal God took the initiative to reveal the least of God's commandment to you, that means there is, there is a meaning that you need to know behind that. That you want to know, that you want to study. You're not careless. So if you have that attitude, Jesus says, then you are diminishing the supreme authority. That will reflect your life, your work, your righteousness among men and before God. May God prevent us from such a, an attitude. You know, I don't know you, but here there is a promise. If you have such an attitude of disregarding portion of the Bible, or not having the kind of desire to get to know the Bible in full, and not willing to 
mirror your life into the Bible and say, oh, I think this area can still be under my control. I don't want to give up this part of my life. I, I know these passages are a little bit offensive. I don't want to know them. You know how God will call you? If you are saved, if you are a Christian, and if you get to, get to go to heaven, He will call you least in His kingdom. Now, it's not that your name will be least, but He will acknowledge you throughout eternity as the one who didn't really care for His word. He didn't really care for what God has revealed. He will acknowledge that. God has, has a way to establish a rank in heaven. And we see that, you know, when Jesus' disciple came to him and said, and say, hey, can I see that your right hand? Can I see that your left hand in your kingdom? Say, hey, Jesus, that's not my authority. That's my father's authority. He will decide the places of honors and the places that are less of honor. And there are places of honors in heaven and places where because of what we had done in this side of heaven will impact our eternity. One of these is the way you handle the Word of God. For that reason, James says, hey, be careful. Not many of you go on the pulpit and be preacher. Be careful. Because you will be required. You will be double responsible for what you say. And God will call you accountable to that words. So many of you be teachers. Let's approach this word with respect. But not just for the sake of this book. For the sake of the God that is revealed in this book. We want to know God in full, even in the little and minute details. And you say, how do the Old Testament and minute laws can apply to me? Like in Deuteronomy 20, 22, 9, when, Jesus, when, when Moses says, Do not bound together an ox and donkey. We don't use even the ox, oxes and donkey together anymore to, to plow the ground. Well, how do I apply that? Well, let's go to First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 6. Let's see. 2 Corinthians 6. Verse 14. Look at Paul. So wise, full of the Holy Spirit. says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? And what fellowship is light with darkness? You know how he came to this conclusion? Using Deuteronomy 22. When, when Moses said, do not plow together with an ox and donkey. You know why? The ox was considered a pure, clean animal. And donkey was considered an impure, unclean animal. And God cared so much about his people that he had to distinguish themselves from the surrounding nation. I want you as a holy nation devoted to me. Don't mix yourself with anything that is unclean and is impure. That was the reason he, he commanded that. So when we have these little things, little commandments, don't disregard them. Apply yourself to the study of the Word of God to understand the eternal truth that is behind it, that as Paul did, he just understood that. Say, hey, as believers, we cannot come together in a, in a marriage or in a business with an unbeliever who doesn't want to, to honor God. I want to be holy and pure. My will, my desire are effective first and foremost of honoring God. 
and help the church to honor God in everything that I do as a man, as a business, as a, as a, a husband, or as a wife. Really important, even the least of this commandment. And I'm going to give you a, a, you know, a lesson from the greater to the lesser. The mentality that we have in, in our society, the great respect that we have in our society of one another, we like our reputation, we go on, get out these doors, and we never kill anybody, right? I would never do that. Or, or I would take a little child and, and rape it. No, that's, oh my goodness. But think of what Jesus is doing here. Let's go to verse 21. You have heard that the ancient were told, you shall not commit murder. Who says, oh yeah, that's not my intention, Lord. Oh, I never killed anybody, right? I'm a, I'm a good person. I never killed anybody. I never stole. And... Uh, Jesus goes on and says, And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. There was rules and regulation in the Old Testament that were clear, that God gave. But yet Jesus says, But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. The lesson from the greater to the... The lesson from the greater to the lesser. We definitely care about the big things, Right? We will never go out and killing people, raping people, killing anybody, stealing. We care about our honor before the people, right? But how many times you neglect it, they lose anger in your heart, the lust of your eyes, and you indulged yourself in these things. Oh, he made me so mad. Or she just made me so angry. Jesus says, a great lesson from the greater to the lesser. Careful your heart. If you really care, if you really live your life according to the supreme authority, you will not just conform your outside. You will go deep in your heart. And see what is the motive that makes you do what you do. And you control the anger and the lust. And you control the way you relate with people. The way you try to establish a relationship with one another. When comes conflict, you know how to deal with those. And your first motive is not to secure yourself. I'm not the one who made a mistake. But you want to seek reconciliation because you care for God's honor. These are effects of the word of God that flows in a superior righteousness. You must reject the legalistic, religious, self-indulging human tradition. The Pharisees and the scribes had this wonderful book in their hands. And you know what they did it? They use it to indulge themselves in a moralistic, legalistic lifestyle that would exalt them above others, but only exteriorly. For that reason, Jesus said, you are whitewashed tomb. White outside, dead inside. 
This is a superior righteousness that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. When He opens up your eyes to understand the supreme authority, where you devote yourself to study, and impacts your heart, and examine your heart, and you, you don't care anymore the people around you. You care more about what's going on in your heart. You're not anymore offended by the people around you. You're offended by the desire of your hearts. Uh, desires of your heart. And then you thirst and hunger for righteousness. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. That is a wonderful, wonderful word. That Jesus gave to his disciple. He was about to confront the traditional attitude. Separate themselves from the style that the Pharisees and the scribe had so far. And they say, hey, you my disciple, you're not going to do the same thing that these people have done with these crowds. They are lost sheep. They need leaders who uphold the supreme authority of God, which is the revealed word of God. And that will transform their lives in manifesting superior righteousness. What's wrong with America? They have, they have abandoned the truth. And they live a moralistic life. Redefining even what is moral. That's what's wrong with America. That's what's wrong with the world. That's what's wrong in Italy. They don't even consider anymore the word of God. If you, if you preach the message, repent. The same words that Jesus says, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. People laugh at your face. You still do these things? Come on. May God help us all, right? We want to stand. As Jesus says here in verse 14, You are the light of the world, the city on a hill. Bethany on a hill. Let's bring this light on. Shining bright. Showing that we uphold the objective truth of the supreme authority. That demonstrates the power of transforming our lives in a superior righteousness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the instructions that you give us. Thank you for this revealed word that is impacting our lives transforming our hearts, changing our attitudes, make us think very well in how we reply, how we respond verbally, physically in our lives, Lord. Thank you for the comfort that we have of having a word that is trustworthy, that is unchangeable, inerrant, infallible, clear revelation from God that impacts our lives in our daily walk with you. May we uphold and stand for the truth, Lord, to any cost, even the cost of life, as you did it, as you did it for us. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.